0: It's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes, right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Stephen Hunter, the acclaimed bestselling author of the Earl Swagger and Bob Lee Swagger novels, among many others. He joins us today to talk to us about his latest novel, The Bullet Garden. Mr. Hunter, it's great to have you here. I gushed before I hit the record button, so I don't have to do that now. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest one, The Bullet Garden?
0: Well, it's set in 1944 in the Battle of Normandy, which is not widely known. People think you say Battle of Normandy, you mean the invasion. No, indeed. There was another battle just inland. From the invasion site, which took place in June, July, and August 44, when the American First Army got hung up in a landform called the Bocage, meaning huh. a rolling, a series of rolling meadows uh, and uh, hedgerows of very tough fences made of uh, vegetable matter to get through. And the Germans had heavily fortified it and they deployed snipers very effectively and the snipers as well as every other weapon technology took a terrific toll on our people and we were hung up there for over three months until we finally sort of had to recalibrate our entire approach to ground warfare and then ultimately uh, we were able to prevail so my book takes that into account and it involves earl swagger who was a gunnery sergeant in the marine corps with much pacific experience being recruited by the office of strategic services that's world war ii cia Mm -hmm. and he goes to normandy he's given a temporary army commission as a major and his job is to find some way to counter the german sniper offensive And uh, so the book takes off from there. There's some convolutions. A lot of it turned out, this was a surprise to me, it ended up a lot of it being set in London. And it's also a portrait of the capital city of World War II, uh, socially, historically, intellectually. uh, It's full of uh, one of the great uh, pleasures I took in it, was bringing in cameos by famous people in London at the time. Uh, Hemingway is a stalking horse. He never quite shows up. I do steal uh, some metaphors and similes from his wife at the time, Martha Gellhorn, who was a great war correspondent, a wonderful war correspondent, and a very descriptive writer, and her stuff was too good to leave on its own page. So I use that with thanks to her. And uh, you, you know, I mean, it's a it's both it's a race to solve a problem, but there each problem leads to more problems, and the thing gets wider before it gets narrower, and there are frequent trips to the front, and uh people seem to like it. Uh that's important to me. I I liked it myself. That is, I like writing it. it Sometimes, mm-hmm. as you know, Terence, uh, get about halfway through, and you think, "Why did I, why did I take <laughs> this road? Why didn't I take that other road? You know, and uh, why did I do this to myself?" Yeah. Yep, it happens to me every book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I never felt that with this book. I enjoyed every second of it. I was actually a little sad when it was over.
1: Right, I could imagine you were, because you, you are very close to the, the uh, swagger family that you have created. And, and these characters are able to go throughout history and, and, and take on uh, various important roles throughout real historic events. Do you have a preference for which uh, character, which swagger character you like to write about? Do you like to write about the more modern day or do you like to uh, do as you did with this book Go into the well,
0: past. I expressed that I was asked that same question by myself. <laughs> and uh my answer was I like them all the same. And the reason I say that is the book I'm working on now is called Lone Gunman. It's three novellas, and it's uh three swaggers, three stories. One set right. in 1934, one set in 1947, and one set in the late 70s. And uh Again, it's been fun. Uh, You know, we go to Chicago in 34. We go to a small tobacco city in 1947. And we go to a... uh, We go to Hot Springs in the late 1970s. And, and, you know, each story is... Yeah, each story is under 200 pages long. More gunfights per per book. In other words, I usually give you three gunfights, but you get... In this book with the same number of pages you get nine gunfights how can i lose <laughs> how can I and read? how could the readers lose
1: <laughs> i mean that's gonna be yeah because you already visited hot springs in the in the novel titled hot springs that had one of the best uh gunfights i've ever seen in the uh, in the bar that was that was a phenomenal scene oh well, so, thank you
0: so much thank you oh no, you
1: you definitely do um you definitely have an affinity for history and also um, tying in real-world events into your stories, uh, I, I would imagine that the research, research is as thrilling for you as writing the the action parts. Uh,
0: sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Uh, I've worked with a. Uh, I usually have a guy uh, doing research for me and helping me. Uh, when I do research, I do it. I sort of cheat. I do. I guess what's called vertical research, instead of, instead of reading everything to learn the context, I read by index. And I only right. read those pages that exactly and explicitly detail, you know, in other words, I get a book on the battle of Normandy. I don't read the whole 600 pages. I go to the index and look up snipers, German pages, 335, 342. And that's right. what I read. And that sometimes leads to mistakes, but it also leads to Steve being a happier boy, uh, you know? Yeah. We always go the, the root of the happier boy. What can I say? No, it's true because- You would know easy. that. You know that as well as
1: I do. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, because I, I can understand that because I make the mistake of falling down the rabbit hole when I start going into a, a new genre or a new time period I'm not familiar with. And I know what it's like to get lost in in the research. And then you realize, hey, I got a deadline coming up. I've got to actually start producing something.
0: And that's exactly true. And one of the things I've learned to do is to pick subjects that I already know uh, a lot about. And uh, that way I sort of am familiar with the landscape. I'm familiar with the culture. I'm familiar with what happened before and what happened after. And it's not like, it's not like, uh, starting from nowhere. If you sort of, you're in familiar territory from the start, uh, this book, uh, the bullet garden was, is particularly illuminating in that regard in that, you know, I, I'm, I grew up in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we think of the 50s, we think of Elvis and the beginning of network TV and Pink Cadillacs and that sort of thing. Uh, right. However, the 50s popular culture was saturated with World War II. It's like right. four out of every five books, uh, six out of every nine movies, uh, magazines, especially comic books. And just sort of normal human intercourse was just flooded with reference to uh world war ii and so and that stuff stuck in my mind it never went away so i had all that i had that in there before and i was able to draw on it and it it felt in many ways writing it felt like a nostalgic trip home
1: and i recall
0: books i'd read that i had forgotten about and Uh, you know, movies I'd seen and all that stuff came flooding back. And so that was, that was, that was lots of fun. That, that was, uh, that was very enjoyable for me.
1: Right. I'm sure it was. And also, you know, talking about your point about world war II saturating the entire uh, cultural memory of the fifties, you also had Eisenhower as Mm -hmm. the president Mm. at that time too. And that was a constant, you know, he, he was, for lack of a better term, Mr. World War II.
0: Yes, you're right, he, he very much was. And he was, uh, he was uh, you know, a giant icon. I didn't really get how how great he was. My father was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, and we lived in very Republican territory. And he was, uh, you know, he was disappointed that Eisenhower won the election. And I just sort of took that up. And uh, being a Democrat in Evanston in the fifties was like being a British spy in Paris in the forties. You know, it was <laughs> it was really dangerous. You yeah. know, you were behind the lines. Believe me. And uh, uh, but I finally I caught on how great a man Eisenhower was. I, I'm glad to say my eyes have been opened, and I, I'm much more appreciative of what he did than than of. And he even makes a. A brief guest appearance in this book
1: yeah it's, sort of hey, like,
0: it's like the johnny carson show of world war ii
1: <laughs> <laughs> i know i can imagine because there were so many rich characters that you could cover back then and there's a there's an interesting um biography that i just read fairly new on eisenhower and it was uh, it was fascinating. It only talks about his presidency. It mentions, of course, his World War II career, but it talks about him as president. And I found it fascinating how his military career influenced his policies that ultimately influenced a lot of the 50s as well.
0: That is very interesting. Yes, and I'm sure that's true. He was always a military man. I mean, he was mm-hmm. deeply and passionately culturally into the DNA level of the military. And, and no matter... No matter how many goofy golf shirts he wore, he was a four-star general. Well, <laughs> you better not forget that. <laughs> yeah, and he
1: wasn't one to allow people to forget that either. He was uh he was quite a person. I also noticed uh in of the many books of yours I've I've read that you've you've also del- delved into some popular, I'm not gonna say conspiracy theories, but they're they're very uh they're genres that have their own niche, like I Ripper and the third bullet, which is the JFK assassination. And then another book about the possible plot to kill Truman. I was wondering about your experiences doing that because we just mentioned the rabbit hole with with research and all three of those uh, topics have no shortage of of research that have been done on it. What was it like uh, delving into that part of uh, history?
0: Well, uh, interestingly enough, uh i I, in this sense i'm a bad researcher in that i came up with theories before i did any deep research and Mm -hmm. so i then the research that i did uh i did simply to justify the conclusions that i had already reached so that makes it easier as a writer uh it's uh, the other thing is one of my problems all writers have problems i'm having a problem with it now and one of the stories i'm writing is keeping it properly organized uh i'm not an organization man and Mm -hmm. especially with a novel that's based on conspiracy uh you you can as you say you can wander off into the deep grass and and never come out you've got to sort of it helps to have a, a very vivid and tight plot, and never lose, never lose connection with that plot. Uh, it's 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 you know, uh, it, it, books die when you lose connection with sort of the central impulse that made you want to write the book. So you've got right. to you've got to sort of husband that affection for that uh, for that set for that first impulse. Uh, to keep you organized, and to keep you energized. And that's mm-hmm. true of the research too. Again, uh, I'm doing it very selectively. Uh, I'm violating every historian's law, but I'm, <laughs> I'm obeying every historical novelist's law. If, right. you, know, uh, you know, if the facts are different from the legend, I'll stick with the legend, you know? <laughs> right, right. It's just you like
1: know. the the old saying, never it's let the two get the way of no, a That's a little
0: bit different with the uh, Harry Truman book. That was nonfiction. And right. it was the first and to this day only uh, intensive look at that uh, event, which had totally disappeared from the American memory. But in point of fact, there was a very violent assassination attempt on Harry Truman. And it resulted in a gunfight on Connecticut Avenue. Uh, and that was, uh, we we talked to the surviving participants and we talked to their widows. Uh, I had a friend with me who uh, did most of the research while I, you know, organized it, and did the writing. And uh, it was an adventure. It, I mean, writing nonfiction had its ups and it yeah. had its downs. And uh, there were times in that book, again, when I felt why the hell did I ever decide to do this I had a <laughs> I had a dining room table that was literally heaped with with reading material and I had no idea where anything was I just it just it was there were times there were moments of nightmare in, in that book I suppose there are in most books but that one in particular <laughs> look at that pile I just <laughs> You know, I'd light a cigar, I'd take the <laughs> cork out of the bar- bourbon bottle, and i just sit back and doge off into, into dreamland.
1: Right, right. I can imagine. Yeah, that happened to me when I was writing about the 30s, and my wife banged her toe on, on the pile of books by the bedstand one too many times. She said... She got me a nook, that was when they first came out and she said, let's do something about this pile." So that's when I started buying my, I still bought as many books, but they were all digital, which were which were best for the uh, the relationship. Um, for for a, a, a story like the one like Bullet Garden and, and others, do you outline, I know you have a research partner, but do you outline first or do you have it in your head and you just let the story evolve based on your knowledge?
0: Uh, I've done it both ways. Uh, I've over outlined books and it, it it in some cases, I think it leads to a lack of spontaneity, but I usually have a, a very strong outline, at least of the central conflict in the book and the mm-hmm. developments and when they have to occur in the story for the story to make any sense. Uh, I find that very helpful. I got to do the argument with a well-known uh, writer uh, about outlines, and uh, uh, he was not an outliner, and he thought that outlines kill the spontaneity. In the book, I am an outliner, and I need, I need, you know, a pole to hold the tent up. I need, uh, I need a life jacket. I don't want to yeah. be there at four in the morning uh, and uh, uh, wondering what to do next. You know, I want to know what to do next. I might wonder if I have the talent to do it uh, mm-hmm. or if I have the information to do it or if I'm in the right mood to do it, but I've got to know what it is. And that's, that's what keeps me going. I will say uh, this other writer pointed out that Hemingway never outlined. And that is indeed true. If you read Hemingway's Uh, If you read accounts of his life, you'll see that when he started a story, he had no idea whether it was going to be a short story or a novel. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it surprised him. Uh, And uh, it also was true that the last, you know, 10 years of his life, this was, he'd already had like 16 concussions, but he was writing novels without outlines that just, A would not end. They just keep going and going and going. And B, he had no, he had no, there was no organization to them. It was, and he understood, give him this credit. It's the only self-knowledge he ever had in his life. He understood that the stuff was basically unpublishable, and mm-hmm. that uh, that didn't stop people from publishing it after he died, and that he right. was doing it as therapy more than uh, more than as uh, uh, serious professional writing. So mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I, I, I the only thing I can really say is the outline principle works for me. Maybe it doesn't work for for someone else, but I, I can only speak from my experience. Exactly
1: right, and that's what counts because you know I, I never I, I've had authors similarly argue about that they outline as opposed to not outlying. and I'm saying it's fine as long as the work gets done. You've yeah, got there's a book no, published. There's,
0: there's, there's, no, no, there's no, no reason no to argue. Way, you know, it's not no. like being a doctor. If you want to be a doctor, you've got to follow certain very prescribed steps. If you want to be a novelist. You're sailing into uncharted waters. Each time, each book is a first book. And, uh, you know, what worked before may not this time. Uh, you know, yeah, well, let me just add one thing about the outlines. The other aspect of the outline is that in working, and I'm sure you've found this true in your work, sort of the, the clash of ideas and the stress of trying to find the right way to do something will often create your best stuff. That's not on the outline, and you're a fool if you don't follow that. In other words, ideas that aren't on the outline will occur to you, and you should always accommodate them, or at least look at them very seriously. Uh, And don't be afraid to leave the outline behind if you find a better way to do it.
1: Of course, yeah, because when when you do go up into uncharted territory, that's where the magic happens often, isn't it? It certainly is. Now, I know that you said that you're – working on um, a a series of three novellas. Um, I was wondering if uh, what else you're working on beside that, or is that the the main project right now?
0: Oh, I'm not a multitasker. I can do one thing at a time. And uh, that's, in fact, the only way I can do that is I let that become my whole life. Mm -hmm. I I see these guys, oh, they write screenplays and then they write... uh, Uh, young adult books and then they write adult thrillers and then they do stand-up comedy Uh, (laughs) you know I I could I can only do one thing okay Uh, this is my I'm a one trick pony I can do this and I can write an 800 word review of a movie those are the two forms that I'm comfortable in and uh, everything else is is, uh, because I've just sort of Sort of dedicated to my life, or maybe another way uh, to put it is I've dug those two holes so deep that I'll never get out of them. And, right. uh, and that's just you know I'm not flexible. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> I'm not very nice either. But I'm certainly not flexible. I, I just uh, I just have to do it my way, and I don't. I get I, I get anxious if if I depart from from my way. You know what I'm saying? It's, right. It's what it is. Uh,
1: right. Yeah. No, I get people that. Sometimes I really say, well,
0: why don't you, and the only, uh, I mean, I, I've run my life on uh, a sentence that's about what five words or six words long. And the words are, I don't feel like it. Five words, you know, <laughs> <laughs> why don't you do this? Because I don't feel like it. And that to right. me is 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 makes perfect sense and, and i will obey until the word i until the day i die right right
1: and it, and, and it certainly seems to be working so why why change it for the sake yes, of change? exactly it's ridiculous it's a bit, well sir this has been a wonderful conversation i'm sure that the listeners have heard an awful lot about what you've you've done and how you do it and uh What's the best way that people can follow you for the next stuff on social media and things like that? Uh, well, I'm not
0: a big social media guy, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. However, I do have a Facebook page. Uh, the, the, my Facebook page is for Steve, not Stephen Hunter. And right. uh, people can, but to be honest with you, it's never really captured my imagination. And I use it more for policy announcements and news than I do for uh, you know I never publish anything I try and keep politics off of it uh, mm-hmm. I try and uh, have fun and make fun of myself and uh, I publish pictures of my grandchildren that's how that's how that's how ridiculous I've become in my old age but well, they're all grandchildren anyway uh, and, and <laughs> so it's uh, Steve uh, I, I I don't know just Steve Hunter. On Facebook, Hunter. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and then also too,
1: your publisher has a page on you, which is the best place for people to keep in
0: touch. Yeah, with that's you. that's very good. Yes, you. Thank you for coming. Oh no. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I problem, had forgotten but... completely.
1: <laughs> no, and if anybody wants to track uh, Mr. Hunter, he's got. Uh, you just put him in Google, and then you'll see everything about him. He's got a Wikipedia page on him and everything else. So, Mr. Hunter, thank you so much for joining us here for another edition of spies lies and private eyes right here on the authors on the air global radio network when you're looking for the best place to find your next thriller please check out bestthrillerbooks.com they've got the best thriller reviews and giveaways on the planet that's bestthrillerbooks.com thank you very much
0: everybody thank you Terence. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.